This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm speaking with Nick DeCastro, founder of Land Trust, a new venture seeking to connect landowners and recreationalists. But we just get to work on a really impactful thing that touches, you know, America's farms and ranches, food production, conservation, and recreation. It gets a fun Venn diagram to be at the center of. The Land Trust model creates new revenue streams for landowners and enables access to lands previously difficult or impossible for the public to access. Given the building pressure on working lands throughout the West, Land Trust offers an innovative and intriguing idea for sustaining economic viability. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, Justin. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Uh, absolutely. So to your native Montanans chagrin, I was born in Laguna Beach, California and uh, <laughs> grew up there. Uh, I wonder how many listeners San- we lost right there. I'm sorry. I, ha- I have to be honest though. I have to be truthful. Yeah. I grew up in Southern California, uh, surfing, fishing, spearfishing, hunting. And I know people are like hunting in California. That doesn't sound like a thing, but it was at least when I grew up there. So sure. um, yeah, I grew up down there and just loved the outdoors and uh, then I went away to school on the East Coast. I went to Boston University uh, for college. I lived in New York after that, in Chicago, San Francisco, LA, Boulder, and then up here to Bozeman in 2016. Kind of been all over the place. Sure. So before we get into land trust, just kind of summarize your professional background. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was not really much of a student. I think I graduated with a 2.3 GPA. Um, I like working. Um, so, you know, uh, out of school, I went into sales and partnerships uh, and went into the advertising technology and marketing technology space back in 2010. So it was a really mm-hmm. fun time to be in. It really exploded there. And I spent all my time in digital, did a lot of influencer work. I was, I think I was the first person to ever sell Microsoft, GM, and Adobe uh, YouTube influencer campaigns back in like 2011, 2012. And that was a very terrifying thing for a brand to actually do. Um, you know, it was such a new thing. It sounds bizarre now. Obviously, every brand is, you know, leveraging influencers across every platform as soon as the platform launches. But back then, it was a, you know, it was a traditional marketing mindset of you make a big, beautiful, multi-million dollar spot and you run it on television and, you know, you control the narrative. Where uh, we were saying, hey, you know, this platform YouTube has got some people on here. You told us who you want to target. These people have those, you know, those people watching their channels because of who they are authentically. And if you want that alignment, you need to let them speak authentically about your product or brand. And again, now that seems obvious. Back then, it was pretty pretty scary. So a lot of brands mm-hmm. tiptoed in, and we were there. And I, in early in my career, I helped them wade into the social waters. Super. And that took you to various stints in various places around the country. How did uh, Bozeman yep. become a landing strip for you? Sure. I had come up and fly fished a couple times in my teens with my family um, on Rock Creek outside Missoula and just Montana's, yeah, Montana's beautiful. After my stint in Boulder, that was the first time I lived kind of near the mountains. Um, I liked it. I liked, you know, the offering there, but it's pretty busy and Boulder's a pretty town, but you know, it's kind of at that point where Boulder is just merging into one massive suburb of Denver. And, uh, yeah, I decided that I wanted, I love the mountains. I love being close to the stuff that I'm passionate about, like being outdoors. But I wanted a little less people and 
you know, Montana had always been there in my mind. Obviously, coming from the technology space, I needed to live somewhere where there's also some tech. So it was either kind of Missoula or Bozeman. And just Bozeman, I think, suited me a little bit better. So I made the move. Super. So let's get into Land Trust. What is it and um, what problem is Land Trust trying to solve? So uh, Land Trust is a land sharing marketplace. Your listeners may be familiar with home sharing uh, platforms like Airbnb or VRBO. Uh, there's some car sharing platforms out there like Turo. Um, we focus on land sharing. We work predominantly with agricultural owner operators, so farmers mm-hmm. and ranchers. Usually almost all of our uh, landowners who list their properties on Land Trust are multi-generation farmer ranch families. No. It's not to say every single one, but predominantly. Yeah. And uh, they use Lanchus to tap into this outdoor recreation market. So uh, we started the company with hunting uh, because I wanted to use it, right? I was, I was the customer seeking to solve his own problem. I, you know, in Bozeman, obviously, we have tons of public land in Montana, which is awesome. We love public land and we use it all the time. But, you know, there's a lot of private land that's right around that's beautiful and has its appeal too. And I just found myself saying, well, I'd be happy to pay that landowner for access to their place for a day or the weekend or whatever that might be. And there's just no easy way to do it. If you've ever, uh, you know, hunted or fished or done these outdoor activities, like, you know, that door knocking is kind of how this stuff was then. It's it's uncomfortable. Like, let's put it, let's be frank about it. I was a sales guy. I'm not a shy person. And even I didn't love going and doing that. And, you know, on the other end of that too, uh, especially working farms and ranches, these are very busy people. It's a distraction to their day. And as more and more, uh, you know, population has come into a state like Montana, let's say that happens a lot more. So mm-hmm. anyways, it looked like an obvious marketplace issue to me. Um, there was an opaque market. Uh, I had been an early host on Airbnb's platform in New York city when I lived there in like 2011. And I just saw the power of the, uh, of the sharing economy and marketplaces. And I, it was kind of an obvious model for me for this issue. You can use land trust, uh, as a landowner to generate more income from your land. Um, by allowing people to come out and do fun outdoor activities, hunt, fish, uh, we're just getting into the RV space, um, you know, forage, all sorts of stuff. And so one of the themes that we've explored, particularly recently on this program, is the pressure that private landowners are on, working lands in particular in the American West. The question is, like, it sounds like there's a strong argument for that. In your yeah. view, how big of a problem is it? Describe the kind of pressure that a lot of the land, the private landscape in the American West is under. Yeah. So, of course, you have different types of landowners. You have yes. amenity landowners, and these are landowners who, you know, buy property for its, its amenity value to them. So, hey, it's someone who's made some money and they want to own a beautiful piece of Montana or Colorado or wherever it might be. It doesn't have to be in the American West at all. But this is this is not their home. It's not working land. It's not where, how they make their money. It's just they were successful and they would like to own some land to do what they please. But again, it, and we don't work a ton with those people, not necessarily for any reasons. There's no, but just they bought that land to do and have to, to themselves and just for their own recreation value. So generally speaking, they don't really want to, you know, host other folks for that. Right. Kind of the center of the target for us as far as landowners and the, the, the folks that we partner with is multi-generation owner-operator farms and ranches. They live and work on the land. They produce commodities like beef and grain, et cetera. Those are very difficult businesses. They're at the mercy of many things that they cannot control. They don't control the weather. They don't control commodity prices. They don't control input prices. They don't control fuel uh, prices. It's a very tough business. And it's arguably the most important business because it produces all of our food, fuel, and fiber. 
So farmers and ranchers can't disappear. Uh, we would all die. They, they still have to run a business. Finding every way they can monetize their operation to stay profitable is important. As people who love the outdoors, as I'm sure a lot of people who listen to to this this show, I would say we would like to see uh, agricultural lands stay agricultural because they provide not only you know food, fuel, and fiber for us, um, but also habitat and and viewscape and all that stuff. So I mean, look, I live in Bozeman. I live in what was a uh, a wheat field probably five years ago on Google Maps. It was still that field when I moved in. And, you know, there's progress and, of course, in the subdivisions and, and development. You know, that is something that, of course, has to happen to some extent. But I also think that a lot of farms and ranches, you know, they don't want to sell. They want to stay and they want to continue on the legacy that they've been passed down. But, I mean, economics are economics and, you know, property taxes and, you know, commodity market prices and it's et cetera, et cetera. Like last few years we're in drought. There's all these things fighting against them. And at the end of the day, it still has to be a business. There's a lot stacked against them. And if land trust can be a tool in the toolbox to help generate some income from this asset that could go to the bottom line, like that's, we see that as a positive thing. And I assume there's a variety of sort of market and ancillary forces that you introduce into your model. I would assume that a landowner can make choices about of course, sort of activities that that they allow on their property, and then there's probably some sort of uh, information revealing system. What I'm getting at is like I can rate my Uber driver, and if the oh, guy yes, yes, if yes, the guy was yeah, a terrible driver, systems. I put that on the yes. app, and it sort of is a problem solving information mechanism. So there's probably some sort of information system built into the platform that that absolutely. That, that yes. accounts for that. Maybe you can describe it better than I. So land trust operates like a many, you know, two-sided marketplaces. So on the on the supply side for land trust is landowners. So people who have land that has recreation value. And then on the demand side for us, the guests can be hunters or fishermen or foragers or RVers. And, and I think regionally around the country, you'll see different activities. Maybe it's snowmobiling or, you know, birding, stuff like that. If your listeners have ever used some of these other marketplaces, like an Uber, like an Airbnb, like a VRBO, um, you know, some of those are outdoorsy, the RV sharing platform, will all have the same type of componentry. So you can search, um, you can, you know, make inquiries with the hosts, you can book it all through their through the platform. We have insurance, we do ID verification, and then yes, after the trips happen. The landowner rates the guest, and the guest rates the landowner, and so you start to build up this kind of layer of trust. The goal being transparency is really what drives high quality experiences and allows for you know potential low quality experiences or guests to be pushed out of the platform. So an issue for many communities in Montana is a lack of affordable housing. And so a business, a sharing economy business like an Airbnb has been criticized because it introduces uh, the negative externality of people from out of town buying up properties and renting them out on short-term rentals. And that crowds out the market for people that want to live and work in a community. It would seem that land trust on the surface might present some similar problems. How is it similar and or different? And how are those problems maybe addressed differently with land trust? Absolutely. The argument can be made for like lodging. One of the negative externalities of it is exactly what you said. Hey, I mean, I live in Bozeman and in my neighborhood, I have buddies who own houses that they just Airbnb and they live in other houses. So you can make an argument that it's utilizing something that locals and local families could uh, rent, you know, long-term. Right. And 
the real key difference here is that lodging, like a home, is really a necessity. And so the problem that, you know, that externality is created because when you list, you know, a home on uh, on a marketplace like uh, Airbnb or VRBO and it gets rented, it's 100% of its utility, which is lodging, is being used. So it can't be, you know, used for local people. Land sharing is really interesting because, you know, land has myriad uses. So it's not just like there's no one single use for land. And those uses can happen simultaneously, concurrently. And, you know, for, for what we use it for, which is rec- outdoor recreation, um, outdoor recreation isn't a necessity the way something like lodging. Lodging and food are necessities. Outdoor recreation is amazing and a huge part of all of our lifestyles, and we love it. But uh, you can't make the argument that, well, you know, I, I won't live or my family can't live because we can't go do this. Right. So, and, and, you know, all of our properties, you know, while someone might be utilizing the recreation access on it for a day or two days, Simultaneously, that that property is lodging the family that lives there. There's work being done on it. Agricultural products are being produced. So it's a bit different than a lodging marketplace where like, well, you had an apartment or a home and it's being rented here. So 100% of its utility is being utilized. And I would assume the same holds true to some degree, although it might be blurry with conservation value, right? The, the recreational it use is. could have some some influence, negative influence on the conservation value of the landscape. However, that has to be balanced against the the revenue that that usage creates and the potential that that helps keep the land in a conservation usage or out of development at the very least. So mm-hmm. talk about that yeah. aspect. Yeah, it actually, I, I might take the counter to that. Um, I okay. would say we have seen if you put recreation value on land, well, let's think what makes, let's just speak about this in very plain terms. So uh, I don't know if you hunt or fish or, you know, like a bird watch or anything like that. What makes a yeah. great property? A great property from like a hunter's eyes or a fisherman's eyes or someone who loves birding or wildlife viewing. It has high quality habitat for that wildlife. By placing value on recreation, the natural market forces will drive them to invest into that asset. Hmm. So just like when, you know, when Airbnb first launched, people were like, no, no one would ever pay me to sleep in the mother-in-law suite above my you know garage. And then they, they try it and like, holy cow, we made like five grand the first year. So what's the natural reaction? Oh, well, maybe we put Wi-Fi in there. Maybe we put a big screen TV. Maybe we put a jacuzzi out and you can make more money. So in our world, in land trust world, where you're putting a value on the recreation access of a property, that is all habitat. So ensuring that there's healthy habitat and wildlife populations um, is incentivized directly. Uh, participation in the recreation markets, outdoor rec markets, through something like land trust actually places a heavy incentive on ensuring that that asset uh, is invested in and, and, and sustains. And we've actually even seen examples of this um, already in our, you know, we're not a very old company. We're almost four years old, but we have, you know, ranchers who we've approached and started working with. And we said, Hey, you know, um, you, you have a lot of turkeys here and, you know, turkey hunters are, you know, they would love to have access to come and hunt turkeys here. And, you know, you get an incredulous look from a rancher saying, are you kidding me? Like you could shoot all the turkeys. I don't care. You know, they do a season with us and they make, who knows, three, five, six, ten thousand $10,000 from turkey hunting access. And we've had the same people call us and say, hey, can you introduce us to the NWTF, which is National Wild Turkey Federation, like biologists, I want to have better turkey habitat. And that's just a normal, rational actor in a market. We'll be back to our conversation with Nick DeCastro after this short break. 
A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, I'm Nora Sachs. I'm the host and reporter of Richest Hill, a podcast from Montana Public Radio, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Nick DeCastro, founder of Land Trust, a new venture seeking to connect landowners with recreationalists. Speaking about realizing the value of assets, how does pricing on the platform operate? So first and foremost, pricing is always up to the landowner. Now, we okay. have a lot of landowners kind of say, hey, what do you guys think? And we're happy to we'll sit down with them and we'll say, hey, we think you have you know great fishing. Maybe you have a pond or whatever you might have. And there's some good hunting value here for hunting access and you know, hey, do you have electric and water? Could we? Could you have? Could you host an RVer? Um, and so we'll just basically look at what the portfolio, so to speak, of things they could offer, and then we give them a a price range because you know every property is different. If it's a it's a nice property and it's you know a few thousand acres, yeah, that's that's great for recreation. If it's a nice property and it's a few hundred acres, that's also still great. You know, again, we will work with you, our landowners, um, to come up with pricing if they don't have something in mind. And But at the end of the day, it's always up. There's been some controversy in Montana over landlocked public lands or yeah. corner hopping in areas where, you know, the grid ownership system is, is in place. Have yeah. you come up against that with some of your owners? Um, has that been an issue you've had to, to navigate and, and how so? Uh, no, I mean, we definitely have landowners. I mean, uh, you know, obviously landlocked public land exists all over the, uh, the West. I mean, I think in most parts of the country, there are instances of it, you know, the corner crossing thing, obviously there's been a bunch of conversation about it, uh, in Wyoming due to the case down there. We don't deal with much of that because we deal with just private land access. And so, okay. you know, that's all public land stuff. I think that the court should either say it's legal or illegal and just call it a day. You know, yeah. I think it's, I think that would be easy for the rest of us and we just move on. Sure. Um, so let's change uh, gears here a little bit. Talk about sort of the mechanics of the business and bringing it to life. You're four years in, so yeah. down the road a little bit. I don't know if you would call yourself a startup still or not. Oh, but definitely. Like, yeah. Okay. So at this stage of your life cycle, and what are the biggest hurdles you face as an entrepreneur and as somebody to get trying to get a uh, an innovative tech platform off the ground here in the state of Montana? We're definitely still a startup. Um, you know, we're under 20 employees. I want to say we're still very much figuring out our market. You know, I, th- I find it very intellectually interesting to try and figure all these problems. I mean, as a startup founder, your job is basically to look at a new problem set every day and try to come up with solutions with your team. It's not glamorous. This is, it's a hard thing to do. And I think anyone who starts a business understands that it's, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, wow, you know, he's successful. You know, how much fun was that? It's a very hard thing. Of course, the capital is absolutely needed and required to um, build and grow a startup like ours. But that comes with a whole other, you know, set of things that you've got to work with. And you know, luckily, when you get great investors, they can help you grow. But there's, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that you have to deal with as a founder that uh, doesn't usually get glamorized. You know, it's fun. I enjoy the team that I work with, and I, I love the business that we built. I love both sides of our marketplace. I'm super passionate about our landowners. I love hunting, fishing. You know, we're getting into the RV space. That's all super exciting. I love it. But we just get to work on a really impactful thing that touches, you know, America's farms and ranches, food production, conservation, and recreation. 
gets a fun Venn diagram to be at the, the center of. Yeah, and I would assume it recruits a ton of different skill sets for you. I mean, yeah. you have to manage development of a tech platform, and that brings with it a whole host of skills and abilities, but also the ability to then go out and connect with landowners and recruit them onto the platform and explain the concept, but also sort of perhaps educate them on okay, this is how it works on your phone and all this stuff, like getting them up to speed there, just a whole host of skills that you have to be adept in. Yes. uh, And I won't claim that I'm adept in all those skills, but I have a wonderful team who, who, who helped me do all that stuff. And, you know, okay, I'm a biased sales guy, but uh, I would argue that um, selling is everything. You have to sell investors to, you know, buy into your idea and invest into you. You have to sell employees to join a tiny little business that doesn't have a product yet or doesn't have any customers. You've got to sell your early adopter customers and landowners that take a risk on you. Um, you know, the, it's all selling, not selling in with some sort of uh, derogatory connotation to it, but you have to be convince people to to try things, to do, to, do, to do new things and take risks. It would seem that maybe, you know, I've been thinking throughout this conversation, like one thing that sets your two-sided market business apart is that you don't you're not trying to disrupt or undercut an existing way of doing business it's not like airbnb trying to disrupt the the traditional hotel business or uber trying to disrupt cabs that's right it seems like your competition is more lack of imagination yeah you know um really powerful marketplaces uh they bring in new supply so they take people who weren't doing that activity before and started to get them to do that. Airbnb actually did this with, it started with air bed and breakfast, right? So I have an extra room, you can sleep in it. That was never, yep. you know, someone with an extra bedroom never thought to monetize that extra bedroom before. So for us, our, our farmers and ranchers, they're very busy people that, you know, they spend seven days a week growing our food, fuel, and fiber. And could they have done this without us or before us? Sure, they could have built a website they could have, you know, figured out insurance and payments. They could have done the online advertising to generate interest in their properties. And, you know, some some ranches have done that. Some farms have done that in the past. But what we do is we we democratize that access to every farmer and rancher and landowner um, to be able to tap into this this demand. And that's what platforms like ours are really powerful at doing. And so you're four years in, still, uh, in your words, decidedly in the startup kind of station of life. What is, uh, you know, describe kind of what success would look like a year from now, five years from now. What's your, what's your horizon? You know, success is continuing our growth, uh, in, in the hunting kind of category. As I've mentioned, we started with hunting and that was always, that's been the focus almost fully till now. We've had people booking fishing and some of these other activities too, just kind of organically. But I think over the next year, we really want to expand into a few of these other categories, RVs and camping being one of those. And just really establish ourselves as a, a brand uh, in in that RV mindset. You know, in five years, I think my goal and hope for Land Trust is that we are the world's largest, you know, outdoor experiences platform. You could actually be on an Onyx map. I don't know if you view Onyx as a collaborator or a competitor or a friend or whatever, but like they bring up information about you know the ownership of a particular piece of land. Gosh, it would be pretty cool to be able to you know, oh, I got to be on that land, touch it on the screen and be able to get plugged into land trust to rent access at that moment. So when you book 
a property on land trust, we, after you, after the landowner accepts that booking, we'll send over a big kind of like welcome uh, and, and arrival instructions and all that. And it will have Onyx maps of the property and waypoints and parking and gates and all that kind of stuff. So we do have a, you know, we do partner with them in that way. And that could be something that who knows the future may hold. Well, super, Nick, it's been so fun getting to learn about this innovative business, just all the problems that you're, you're trying to solve and the novelty of the solution and just the opportunities um, that this presents not only to uh, landowners to keep their lands in working use primarily, but also for folks that want to get out there and experience the landscape as many of us in Montana like to do. So best of luck as this thing moves forward. And we'd love to revisit down the road and uh, learn more about uh, your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Justin, I really appreciate you having me on and, um, you know, just for anyone out there who's interested to learn more about us, uh, you can just go to landtrust.com. Um, if you're a landowner, there's ways to reach out and talk to us. We're real human beings here in Montana. So you won't get some sort of, you know, automated stuff. You can sit, talk to, talk to someone and ask them any questions you want. And uh, if you like getting outdoors, we do have listings in 30 plus states. We have over a million acres on our platform. Super. And are you, uh, since you're growing, are you hiring? Are you looking to find folks uh, to add to the team? We do have, I think, open job descriptions in potentially North Dakota and maybe in here in at the maybe here in Montana too. So uh, I think if you're someone who has a, a skill set that you think would be very useful to us, we I, we field these all the time. So we'd love to hear from you. And you know, even if we aren't hiring for exactly what um, you know you might be best for right now. Uh, we'd love to at least know that you, you're out there and when the time comes, it might be the right fit for you. Super. Best of luck, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO Jeff Ament and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.